All right, we're back with a new episode of Real in the Field, and today we talk to Dr. Tajav Sherifan. Yeah, and he takes us through his journey from a personal trainer, high school football coach, and then eventually becoming a doctor. Yeah, and then we touch on his experience working in a hospital during the COVID pandemic, and then he gives us his views and insight into the medical system. Then we play a fun game at the end where we try to stump Dr. Tej and give him some real and fake diseases and see if he knows the difference. Yeah, so sit back, enjoy this episode. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe and enjoy the show. We are back with a new episode of Real in the Field, and we've got a new guest today. Dr. Tajav Sherifan is here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. All right. So, little backstory: we used to coach football together, and then I had to go to a different school, and then you went a different path. Stayed in touch. We text for a little while, and then next thing you know, you hit me up and you say you're a doctor. Yeah. Uh, Definitely taking the the road less traveled. Um, it kind of goes back to, you know, I was a kid. And looking back on it now, it was a little bit of a flippant comment by my dad. But, you know, he said something along. And it was in Farsi. It was another language. And he said something like, you know, uh, his doctor saved his life. And my dad was not an unhealthy person. He just had diabetes. But it was just something that I think, you know, sticks with you as a kid. Yeah. And um, at 18... I got, I was uh, working out a lot, playing, playing yep. f- high school football and, you know, 18, my athletic career as illustrious as it was comes to a, an end as most people who play high school sports do. And one of the personal trainers who kind of knew me a little bit, he, uh, he grabs me and he's like, Hey, one of the personal trainers quit. Will you train this person real fast? And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, doesn't matter. Just go through all the machines and just go down the machines all in order. <laughs> and so I did that. We just went leg extension, legs curl, leg press, and then just went down all the machines and then at the end of it, he hands me 60 bucks cash. And, um, you know, in 2002, you hand an 18 year old, uh, you know, that kind of money. It was oh, kind of hooked. Swimming in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Stoked. So that took me down the path of, you know, kinesiology and strength and conditioning and all those types of things and kind of was a little bit of an inroad or an introduction into, uh, you know, the sciences of the body, uh, like biology, chemistry, physiology, change, health, those types of things. So, yeah. Those two combinations of like that moment with my dad and then always thinking about wanting to be a doctor and then learning all those sciences, I always had that kind of vision for myself. And I think it wasn't until we went to one of those coaching clinics, and I don't know if I've ever told you the story, um, I went to the, one of the strength and conditioning uh, clinics and I talked to Chris Carlisle. Okay. He was uh, the strength and conditioning coach for USC uh, during the P. Carroll days. Oh, Reggie- the, ball, the ball guy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, and he was very warm and, you know, very inviting and stay tuned and, and talking. And I, th- and I think, um, I ended up picking his brain and got to through Cal State Fullerton, got to like work with him for a sh- shadow him for a week yeah. Yeah. and got to know him and went up there and, you know, saw everything going on at, at USC and, and what they were doing. And I was talking to him and as I got to know him, I started talking to him about the life of coaching, um, especially at that level, which was, that was the pinnacle was going to be strength and conditioning coach, NFL team, um, you know, uh, college team. Yeah. And, uh, I started talking to him about what it, how, what his life has been. And, you know, he said basically in the last 10 years, he had been at seven different places, Wow. you know, dude, that's why I didn't go to the college route. People right. tell me all the time, Oh, why don't you go coaching college? No. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. You Trump lose and you're out. Yeah. yeah. And you're picking your family one. up and you're out. Yeah. And, no, thank and, you. 
speaking of family, like that was the kind of, um, you know, what really sealed it for me. He was talking about, I think I forgot now if it was his daughter or, or if it was his son, but that she's completely withdrawn, like doesn't socialize. Cause like every two years they have to pick up and move. So she oh, kind of like yeah. has this, you know, thing of aversion to, um, you yeah. know, socializing. Cause that's, incredibly painful for a kid you know first grade you know second grade you make friends and then boom you got to go to a new school yeah and then you know i think as i kind of matured and you know you become like 27 28 you know you're like what do you want out of yourself in life what do you what do you want to make of yourself what kind of challenges you want um and then i always had that 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 vision of you know that conversation of uh, how impactful that was for my my father to say something like that and I wanted to get into something that was an act of service and that would still be along the lines of what I was doing, which was, you know, helping people live a healthy lifestyle and, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, getting healthy. What and was it about your dad's situation when he makes that comment? Because that's a pretty uh, heavy thing to say, you know, so that, that person yeah. saved uh, his life. And saying that he's, you know, otherwise like healthy, like how did that doctor save his life? He just diagnosed his diabetes. Oh, I see. Which for my dad, who has like a limited understanding of medicine at that time, like that was pretty significant. Yeah. Now, like, in retrospect, wow. looking back at it from now, yeah. like in now, now what I know what real disease is like, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, my dad was just thirsty all the time, feeling tired, yeah. and like had all the signs and symptoms of an early diabetic. Yeah. And so, you know, to him, it meant a lot. Yeah. In the yeah. scope of medicine, it wasn't really that sure. impressive but, but even still something that changed his way of life which ultimately would change i mean because that uh, undiagnosed and untreated is is a de it could be deadly for oh, sure absolutely yeah wow that's pretty uh, i mean that's that's so that's stuck with you mm -hmm. from that moment like him having that kind of uh feeling towards doctors mm -hmm. that kind of stuck with mm -hmm. you and that was just something that you know if i could give that gift to somebody else or somebody else's family let them see their children, you know, grow up, get married, or, you know, kids getting to see their parents around longer. That, yeah. you know, it's a huge act of service that I just really wanted to, to participate in. Yeah. Okay. So you make the decision, and then you're like, you're on your way. Yeah. And uh, honestly, not really knowing what I was getting myself into uh, was probably the one of the better things, because it was, it ended up being so daunting at every turn. Yeah. And it was kind of one of those things well I shut all the doors behind me you know packed everything up quit everything and there's no going back no now going back, yeah. but if I would have you know what I talk about a lot with some of my colleagues is like you know because I didn't have any doctors in the family I didn't really know anybody else that was in the medical field it was just an adventure that I wanted to, to go and if I would have really sat back and looked at what the next journey over the next basically seven, eight, nine years would have been. I don't know if I would have gone down that road, but I'm what does that journey look like? What is that? How do you start off? And where do you, where's the, the starting line? If you're like out, coming out of the starting blocks, where's that? And what's that path? Look well, like? especially from my path, it was so unconventional because you don't have a lot of, you know, basically 28, 29 year olds deciding to go back to med school. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, usually a very linear path for kids, you know, their parents have ingrained in them that they're gonna do well in school and that they're gonna do, you know, well and uh, get study hard, get grades. So high school, it's always valedictorian, be the top of your class, yeah. uh, get into, you know, um, a good university, study uh, pre-med, get yeah. all that, take the MCATs, yada, yada, yada. So I was probably six, seven years out um, from undergrad and, you know, the med schools just looked at my curriculum and were like, we don't even know if they teach some of this stuff <laughs> that, that, that you learn. Especially, you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got a birth certificate? <laughs> yeah, I am 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
I had to go back and do what they call a post back. Um, and so I did a post back at UCI and just like, and it was so hard. It was so hard because they gave all the priority to the enrolled kids and everything. And I was just crashing classes and you so know what is sorry what is the post back just for people post back oh sorry is a post bachelor degree okay. so for people that didn't have all of the basic sciences that you need for medical school yeah they have programs where you can go and instead of getting another degree you just take the core sciences gotcha. that you need to qualify for med school gotcha, okay. um again biochem uh chemistry uh biology anatomy yeah. all those types of ologies and all of those things that you need uh, to qualify. So I had to do that, uh, at UCI and that was good because that kind of prepped me for what I wouldn't need to learn how to like learn how to learn again Yeah, because it was so long that you have, you know, had your head in a textbook and trying to memorize things and conceptualize things. So do that, get that done, take the MCATs, find a school that'll accept me. Um, and luckily, you know, there was a school down in Florida that, that, uh, was open to like my non-conventional path. And it was yeah. like, Hey, this just means you're a little bit more mature. Yeah. You really want this. We have a lot of people that just are kind of going through this cause this is this next academic step. And then it's, you know, um, it's four years of medical school. The first two years are just brutal academics, yeah. just brutal, brutal, you know, um, eight hour lectures, not one, but eight hours of lecture a day yeah. and just oh, moving, geez. moving, moving, yeah. moving. And so you're, so you're living in Florida. Yeah. And at 31, 32. And so what, like, is it its own campus? Yeah. Like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, so part it's of not it, part of, like, yeah. Florida State. Like, it's no, no, literally no, no. It's, yeah. its own thing. So uh, part of the school was also in the Caribbean. So that way you could, like, get around certain things in terms of um, seeing patients and, and prescribing medications. Because you're not oh, board certified. But then these places in the Caribbean, they don't have any medicine so it was like a way to uh work kind with practice, practice medicine, medicine. Yeah, exactly yeah. so there's a need out there for yeah. yeah yeah so we're like bouncing back and forth between you know florida and the caribbean but anyway so the first year is classroom all classroom and then like a little bit of you know what they call like physical exam skills like listen like how to do a stethoscope how to auscultate yeah. you know like palpating on the stomach those types of things but it's mainly just to kick your butt academically second year same same stuff then on your in your third and fourth year uh is your clinical years uh where you now will be at a hospital and you're doing like in hospital learning so it's a combination of um the core disciplines surgery internal medicine pediatrics ob-gyn family uh medicine and psychiatry and it's it's either four or 12 weeks in each one of those and you follow around residents and other uh, doctors, and they give you, depending on where you do your training, you have different um, level of participation. Sometimes it's just purely observed. And then some of the other places, like you're in the surgeries, you're retracting, you're holding wow. certain de- devices, yeah. you know, you're putting in um, notes, you're helping write up like assessment and plans. So it's, it's varied. But that is on the job training. And then on top of that, they, you still have lectures tests and curriculum on top of it it's just scaled back now because you're spending eight hours at the hospital okay let me ask you this if we can go back a little bit so once you're in and you're at that school in florida Mm -hmm. are they working to get everyone through it or are they still trying to weed some people out no and that was actually one of the toughest things that i had gone through 
is med school is if I can if it's fair to make the analogy be it's like it's like a crucible of education. It's I kind of made the analogy of it's it's education buds training for Navy SEALs. Like the the goal is to see who's not committed, who doesn't have the okay. talent, and who we can separate, you know, um, and and not really bought in. Yeah. I mean, okay. you're talking about I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, because you think about with uh, buds training, yeah, they're trying to do exactly that, weed out the people because mm-hmm. the top, the, this job is so demanding that you need this level of not just how book smart you are, but the kind of stress that you're going to be going through on a day-to-day basis. So it's a good way to yeah, weed those yeah. people out who yeah. can't take it. Um, and, you, you know, you're talking about tests where, like, the average mean, and these are people that are in med school that are smart and then know how to study and take it serious. Like, the average mean on the test is, like, 65%, 55%. So it's a constant hit to either your ego or your self-esteem of, like, I am – bust in my, you know, like really putting in 16 hour days, 18 hours days, getting like 40% on tests. <laughs> yeah. And and then it, it gets curved and, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's appropriate, but you're, you're also just constantly like, how I, I looked yeah. at everything. I've studied everything. <laughs> how is this test still this well, hard? That, like, why are the tests so hard then? That, that's just, I think that's just the way it is. Well, how much of that do you see? I, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> but how much of that test do you see in the real world? I mean, are these just like very like stuff that you won't ever like run into? Or is it actual practical everyday stuff that you utilize? I'll tell you, in, when I did my post back at, uh, at UCI, we were learning organic chemistry. And anybody that's done organic chemistry, it's this annoying like arrow pushing thing. And, and it has like, like no real world practicality unless you are going to be a chemical engineer yeah. or whatever the case may be. And I remember a kid asking like the teacher, like what, well, like what's the practical application of this? And the teacher just flat out basically said, it's to keep pe- dumb people out of med school. <laughs> and there's sense. so many, that's what, and like yeah. o- OCHEM uh, in particular in the uh, med school world, um, like o- OCHEM is called the dream killer. Because, like, everybody wants oh, to be a doctor until, until you get, get to get OCHEM, <laughs> and then that really weeds a lot it. of the people out but before you get to med school. Oh, um, is that, would you say that's the hardest and that's the most? No, no. I, I, I thought OCHEM was relatively not that bad. I didn't understand the hype uh, about it. But going back to what you were saying about, I mean, there's, like, a whole curriculum in biochemistry. Yeah. Where it, bio, and it's, it is really important. And biochemistry is essentially the molecular level, what's going on, um, inside your cells, which yeah. obviously is super important and it's good to understand. It's not been a part of my actual practice one time. Really? Like ever, ever. <laughs> like learning all of these intense, you know, um, energy pathways like glycolysis, ATP, yeah. like some of the stuff that you're familiar with. It has <laughs> come up like <laughs> once and like if, you know, like where I, I can't figure out what a patient has and I go, well, if you think back to like glycolysis <laughs> right now and the regulating step of this, oh, that's what it is. Like it has no, no bearing and it's a huge, huge part of yeah. the, the curriculum. Yeah. Um, is and, that another uh, thing to weed out the, <laughs> yeah. the dummies? <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, I don't know if it was because at one point it, it did lead to a part of medicine that, you know, you, you needed to know. And it helps you. I think that kind of stuff, it ends up helping you understand pharmacokinetics for some of the medications okay. that you're going to be prescribing. So it's all just foundations that they build on. But yes, there's yeah. a lot of things that you learn in medical school that 
do not show up when you're actually practicing medicine. Yeah. Well, what was, if you had to like pinpoint one, like the most challenging thing that you experienced during med school, like what would that, what would that be? I would, um, besides like some of the different subjects, I would just say it was the, it was the constant hit to the soul of like, yeah. am I good enough? Yeah. Is, is this going to work out? Do I know what I'm doing? Um, how hard is how hard everything was the volume yeah. that it kept coming um those types of things of just really testing how bad you wanted it yeah. um was it, it like once a week ego shot or was it well it would be with the 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 test it'd be like probably every you know um 3 weeks every 4 weeks when Oof. we had some kind of Oof. you know just that constant wave yeah. of uh <laughs> doubt <laughs> pressure <laughs> doubt and ego think about and i mean you kind of experience it too through football like you know think about putting something like 16 hours a day and it's your primary focus into something all day and then just getting like either mediocre or above average results yeah it's it's hard to keep going you know <laughs> yeah. and then every once in a while you get like a you know a or whatever and it's like that'll juice what you keeps up you going yeah, yeah. <laughs> keeps you going you know okay so you so the two years are a lot of school and then the last two years you're doing your Clinicals. Clinical stuff. Clinicals. Okay. So you're so on site. There. You're on site uh, training. So you're okay, in so, a hospital. So was that at Bakersfield? Free. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's when um, try to come back home. Family's here. Luckily, through my school, we had a really, really amazing training program um, in the jewel of California, in the high desert, Bakersfield, California. <laughs> if you've uh, never been there. <laughs> if you've ever been there, check it out. I hear right now is a good time to, to visit. Um, Kern County, and I'll be forever grateful for that, for that opportunity that yeah. they gave me because I ended up actually staying there and doing my residency there. Um, but it was great for, for students uh, because it's a county hospital, and in county hospital, things... Oh, you see the, the worst of the worst. You see the worst <laughs> of the worst, and, you know, it's kind of, you know... Any, anything goes. So, like, the students have a lot of um, tangible experience, let's yeah, call it. Yeah, so very hands-on there. Very hands-on, very involved in the, the, the medicine and the patient care. Um, and so that was, that was good training wheels. You basically get there before all the other doctors do. Yeah. And the way that Kern has it set up is you do every single thing that the residents are going to do. You just do it before them. Oh, okay. And then you tell them what you did and what you think and you act as them. Wow. And then they give you feedback um, in terms of like, okay, you're right about this. You're wrong about this. Did you think about this? Blah, 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 blah. And then they then, the residents go do what they're supposed to do. And then they will then also present to an attending physician who's the board certified, has gone through residency. And so it's a nice kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess stepwise progression of, you know, going as a student getting your training wheels and then residency and then, and then attending. So some of the things that you do in, as a medical student, it, like you will be doing in residency, you go, you evaluate the patient in the morning, you do your physical exam, you look at uh, you know, the lab results, you look at all the, the test results that you ordered the day before, all of the consults, and then you know, kind of aggregate that information and then now make a new plan going forward. I think we should tweak this. I think we should do this. This patient just needs this. And then you tell the resident and then the resident goes, okay, that was good. Did you also think about this? Okay. And so then that way, when you get into residency, you should be, you know, kind of hitting the ground running, although you get in the residency and it's a whole new ballgame as well. So, so um, at what point in this, in this whole process do you pick, because you're an internalist or yeah, an, internal medicine internist. Yes. Okay. So at what point does someone say, like, they're going to be an orthopedic surgeon or someone is going to be a this or a that? 
Like, what point in the process do you have to make that decision? Uh, by so when you're done with medical school, well, actually, so you your third year is all mandatory curriculum. You have uh, twelve weeks in general surgery, and or you have twelve weeks in surgery. And so, in that, depending on your program. Um, your surgery program may be able to expose you to orthopedics, may be able to expose you to plastics, may be able to ex- ex- uh, expose you to all the different types of surgery, but you have 12 weeks to get that exposure okay. to see if that's something that you want to do and that's something that uh, has your calling. I'll tell you this, the majority of people get into med- uh, medical school thinking they want to be a surgeon and then they do their surgery rotation and they say, no, <laughs> not, not for me, not, not for me. Guy. One of my uh, roommates uh, in Bakersfield, he came in, he's like, you know, surgeons are, you know, they're the real hospital, they're, you know, they're the real doctors. They, you know, they, they're in the operating room, you're inside of the body. And, and I had already done general surgery. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I think I want to be a surgeon. He does his general surgery rotation for two days and he goes, fuck surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, that changes quickly. Um, okay. So why did you go? Why did you go the route you did then? So, uh, I did internal medicine. So, so you do general surgery in uh, 12 weeks, 10 weeks or 12 weeks of in, internal medicine, uh, four weeks of OB-GYN, four weeks of pediatrics, four weeks of family and four weeks of psychiatry. Um, internal medicine, uh, was the best, for me, because I thought it's it's every in single internal organ, so brain, heart, lungs, uh, liver, kidneys, anything in the stomach. So the variety and the depth is there to keep it interesting all the time. And you uh, always, there's so much to learn. Some of the other things get like a little stagnant, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. Um, internal medicine also then allows you the most amount of fellowships which is the next level of how you specialize after residency. So you have to do an internal medicine residency to become a cardiologist, to become a nephrologist, to oh, become, okay. you know, those types of things. Um, so in, it was a way to see, like, let's go down this road. Um, you get to be a hospital doctor uh, with internal medicine. That means when people get admitted after the ER, after the initial, um, you know, triage, then they come upstairs and they, they get hand over to an internal medicine doctor. And so you take over uh, the patients that are admitted in the hospital, and it's just such a wide variety of uh, different diseases and treatments that it's going to keep the job fresh. Yeah. How uh, does that look like when somebody comes in and, and you're starting to diagnose them? How do they tell you their symptom, symptoms? Like, how does that process go? And how do you start to kind of frame what their, you know, could be? The really challenging thing that I don't think med school does a good job of, of like with our, all of our practice cases and all of these, uh, everything is very typical, mm-hmm. let's call it. So it's like a very typical presentation. Um, when you start talking to people and you're trying to elicit a history from them, they're like vocabulary or the way that they explain things is not like what you've practiced. So like a lot of the things that I'll get is, you know, so for a heart attack, like all the times on, on a, on a test, it's like, sternal pressure feels like elephant sitting on my chest can't breathe hurts when i exit and it's just like when you start reading that you know right away like that's yeah, a heart attack yeah. you'll go talk to someone they're like i got this thing i don't know <laughs> yeah. it kind of like it's it's like a sensation i don't really know how to describe <laughs> it and you don't know if they're talking about their lungs their their heart their they have acid reflux whatever the case may be so the the key is am i asking the questions the right way to get information that's 
useful to me. Yeah, interesting. That's what I like trying to use people skills and trying to like assess the person and then like giving them specific examples so that I can say, okay, well, he's talking about, you know, like uh, typical chest pain or this is more GERD or this yeah. is more lungs, those types of things. So does, that, does that change patient to patient? In what sense? Like in the sense of, say, I come in. Question. And I'm like, yeah, your yeah. question. And I'm like, oh, man, like this or whatever. Like, are you going to approach me different? Yeah. Then yeah. You would say like, hey, is a lineman <coughs> sitting on your chest? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what yeah. I mean, though? Yeah. But like. Yeah. So you even even patient to patient, you have to be able oh, to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. that's the first thing. It's just like, it's like trying to work and figure out what vernacular gives me the best useful information yeah. to help me get the history that I want. And this was something that was harped on us all throughout med school. And now that I've actually been practicing, it's like, it's very true. Like, everybody wants to go straight to the test. You want to go to the EKG. You want to go to the labs. You want to go to, to the imaging. And it... If you do this enough, you can get everything you need or everything you want from an, a good history. Like, mm -hmm. because the disease processes are so, medicine's been around for so long, like, you can get a lot of useful information from an accurate, good history. It's just difficult because people's way of describing or, or people's knowledge of what's going on in their own body is so limited that it it requires a little bit of like finessing the situation or they don't want to tell you. Yeah. That too. <laughs> yeah. It, it's yeah. It's, and it's been really shocking. Like how many people don't have a good grasp on their own medical history. You know, mm -hmm. I'll ask, and, and that's a big part of this whole patient patient interaction is like, okay, trying to think in my head, like what has this person had in the past? Like, what could this be? Mm -hmm. And I'll have men in particular, like men at this are, are uh, the worst. I'll have a guy. I'm like, okay, so like, what's your past medical history? And he goes something with my heart. <laughs> okay what is that something <laughs> okay and he'll be like yeah something happened i was in the hospital i'm like okay that could be anything right who knows he he had palpitations he this that i go and like open up his gown and to like you know auscultate and he's got a huge zipper scar <laughs> from a sternotomy and like, you know what i mean and it's just it's like well something. can you tell me that you had like crash open heart surgery you know <laughs> so that's that's kind of where i go first is like make sure i can get a good history and then that'll dictate everything else of like my algorithm for for diagnosis yeah you can what, tell a lot from uh, <laughs> from the history yeah. <laughs> what what are the ailments that you see like the most and do you ever do you ever second guess your like diagnosing so first question i'd say the first the ailments that i see the most is heart failure um mm -hmm. which sounds scary but it's just basically the heart's a muscle um and it has a, a strength of a squeeze um and that's uh that's measured by what something we call ejection fraction which is and this is getting in the weeds here but basically like how much blood comes in and how much blood you actually squeeze out isn't that your like uh and diastolic and or what yeah oh, so that gosh, number that so takes you back. <laughs> so so your stroke stroke volume stro no. so yeah essentially close it's 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 the fraction of it's not it's, it takes into consideration the stroke volume because okay. what matters in the stroke volume is actually how much, uh, before you measure the stroke volume, how much blood came in. And systolic and diastolic Stolic, or yeah. something. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. so he, he plays a part. So how much blood comes in versus when you squeeze how much blood comes out. And that's called an ejection fraction. That's why it's a fraction. And then that gives you a number and anything below what they call 65 to 60% is, is considered heart failure. Now there's different levels of that you can have i've seen people like five ten percent and so basically instead of having like a strong squeeze you just have this like weak heart that's just kind of 
uh, fluttering like that. Yeah. I'd say that's the most, that's the most. And then still because of the, uh, generation before us that smoked a lot of lung COPD, mm. um, you know, asthma, those types of things I'd say were the most, I think one of the misconceptions that I had when I got into medicine was I was going to be treating these like really unfortunate people that just had this like horrible thing happen to them and it's just bad luck. And what I didn't was not ready for and what I was prepared for is the overwhelming, like, I mean, and this is purely conjecture, just throwing numbers out, the overwhelming amount of admissions or disease processes are all lifestyle based. Really? Yeah. It's very, very uh, interesting to have like a peak ball behind it like so much of our sickness is self-induced is, is self-induced what does that do to you as like a as a doctor like doing your job day to day does it have like an effect on like your view on people and patients it breaks your heart yeah. um one and then two it's my job as, to educate yeah i mean a lot of times you know you'll tell people and i, I still struggle with this a lot like people will just overeat uh be sedentary and eat the wrong things, and then you say, your kidneys failed because of this. Your heart failed because of, of, of this. And they'll really be honestly blown away. Yeah. They're like, what do you mean? And, and just a lot of people, I, I don't know if it's because growing up in like, you know, South Orange County, and it's very like health conscious and, and whatever the case may be, but there's just a lot of people that think that they just didn't know that like, you know, sitting around, drinking this much soda, not moving and not exercising was going to lead to to this much, you know, internal damage. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's heartbreaking and, you know, seeing it um, just with people that we know and you just kind of look. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of look over and go, hey, kind of get your shit together. (laughs) But you're dealing with it like you're having to fix it. You're Mm -hmm. having to fix it on a daily basis and, you know, Mm -hmm. when they're coming in. Do you see patients that come in like repeat? All the time, yeah. Same thing? Yeah, frequent flyers. And it's, it's the same thing. They can't, they can't kick whatever it is that's doing the damage to them. Yeah. And it's just too hard for them to make that lifestyle adjustment, whether it's, you know, over drinking alcohol or overeating and, you know, not controlling their diabetes, yeah. drinking too much soda, like whatever the case may be. Um, because for a lot of people, when it's not, a lot of people just from the, you know, don't do drugs dare era, mm-hmm think that the only thing that's bad for you is cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and all those types of things. And they're like, well, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just, you know, I'm just eating stuff from the store. Like, how bad could that be? I'm not, you know, a drug addict. And the answer is really bad for you. (laughs) It still does a lot of damage. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, man, that's good. All right, well, on that, <laughs> on that, that downer of a note, <laughs> lift we're going to take a quick break. We're going to regroup, and uh, <laughs> we'll be back after this. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Cigar Spots of Orange. Cigar Spots is located in the Circle of Orange. They have all the top brands of cigars and accessories, including my favorite, the Tatuaje Black Label. What are you going with? That's a good cigar. I'm going with the Padron 1964. That's a hard cigar to come by. All you cigar lovers know how hard it is to get that cigar. Uh, But they also do home delivery. You can actually place the order online and have it delivered to your home if you live within the Orange County area. Or you can go and pick it up in store. You can order online, uh, go to the store and pick it up. I did that recently when we were going out to dinner. Needed to get a cigar on the way out. Picked it up in store and uh, I was off. When you were online, did you enter a promo code by chance? Oh, yeah. 
Put in that promo code Tony Joe. Got myself 20% off there. So visit cigarspots.com and like Joe said, enter that promo code Tony Joe to get yourself that 20% discount. All right, and we are back. All right, we got a question. Um, what are some misconceptions uh, about being a doctor? I think one of the first misconceptions that I get is uh, when people hear that you're a doctor, they automatically assume you're a surgeon oh, of yeah. some type and not really realizing that that's a whole specialty in a, on itself. And yeah. so I'll tell people I'm a doctor and they say, well, oh, can you fix this and this? And a lot of people think when you're a doctor that all automatically means that I can do plastic surgery as well. <laughs> it might be more optimistic. Um, but I don't do well with my hands. I, I didn't like the operating room. I hated it. And yeah. so I, you know, um, surge, I would say the biggest misconception is everyone thinks like you're a surgeon or yeah. you can like, you know, work with your hands and cut people open. And that's what it, it means to be uh, a doctor. Yeah. I think one of the misconceptions that I had going into it, um, or one of the things that I wasn't really prepared for is the like business side of medicine mm -hmm. and the admin side of medicine, like so much of what I'm harped on now as a professional is like my metrics. Mm -hmm. um, and it's getting a little bit better with like patient satisfaction, but like now with Medicare, like all of uh, really all of the, that my bosses care about, not necessarily like my doctor bosses, but the money people in the mm -hmm. hospital is like my case medical index, my length of stay, mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's really all they, they, they care about. Like, yeah. and now it's starting to get a little bit into like patient satisfaction and, and, and that type of stuff. But I wasn't really prepared to have non-medical people like have their input yeah. on how hastily or quickly efficiency my medical practice should be. So what is that? What's the reason that they, I mean, I, I guess at the end of it, it's a business and, and, you know, they have to keep the lights on and they have to make sure that the, you know, the costs are down and, um, you know, make sure they keep the lights on. But uh, what is it that they're looking for with your like day-to-day -day patient? So they, Medicare cut the spigot off. So what it used to be and what the old timers always talk about, like the good old days was it was just an endless budget. Oh. So there was like no rush to get people out yeah. of the, of the hospital there was, you know, no um, hindrance on like ordering whatever you you want. Yeah. And then the budget and you know got out of hand and you know um, had to pull the reins in exactly, a little bit. Pull the reins in exactly and and just you know uh, so Medicare and the government started saying like based on diagnosis mm -hmm. you get an allotted sum of money oh, for that gotcha. hospitalization. Does that make sense? So yeah. you so you come in with pneumonia, you get this amount of money. Now, what ended up happening is like that was too vague. So now they have this like uh, like case medical index where it's like, now I have to say, does this patient have severe pneumonia? Pneumonia with sepsis due to pneumonia. Severe sepsis with pneumonia with and organ damage. Pneumonia uh, with uh, acute respiratory hypoxic uh, respiratory failure needing supplemental oxygen. And these are ways that you can like make, not make, but this is a way that you like correctly- Unlock some funds. Yeah, exactly. You, you, the, you are accurately assessing the um, severity of the patient's disease yeah. and then Medicare g breaks you off a little bit more money because this patient's sick and needs a little bit more stay. Right. So are the bosses telling you to like... So we, we go over... That's like a big continuing part of my education and this is where I think med school does a lot of people disservice is like 
and this is where you get your clinical training, it, they're talking about correct w- ways to code things and give correct assessment. Uh-huh. Uh, acute hypoxic respiratory failure, uh, severe sepsis with end organ damage, septic shock, like all of these types of huge buzzwords to get to increase your, your billing. And so they're coming in, numbers people, finance people are coming in and basically kind of telling us what to do and how to word things and how to phrase things and how to document things um, to get reimbursement. And, you know, I, it's, that's the game now. And then that's, that's, that's what it is. I wasn't really prepared for all that because what the hospital wants is to get a big chunk of money, but then save money on how long you're actually there. Cause Medicare is basing the cost on the average length of stay. So they're going to say like, okay, we're going to basically compensate you for what, five days in the hospital should stay for. And then the goal of the hospital is they want you out by three so that like the, those two days that are left over, that's, that's the money that goes to the hospital's pocket. Oh, I see. So like we're saying, it's a business and they're trying to increase their profit margins by doing things like that. Mm -hmm. So the fight is between you and someone who is a numbers cruncher who maybe doesn't really know much about treating patients and what goes into it. And just that kind of almost like humanity side, they're just looking at it from the dollar so, bottom line. And, and they're just, and a lot of the people at the hospital are just the messenger. And like, yeah, and I have to be careful where I displace my anger. Like, so they'll tell me, oh, we only reimbursed you for three days for this. And I'll be like, but this patient was, you know, this was wrong with them. This was blah, blah, blah. And this is a shoulder shrug. It's like, take it up with Medicare. Like, that's yeah. that's what it is. Like, Medicare yeah. only gave us three days of, of coverage for it. Yeah. And so, you know, you got to, really it's not a black and white issue because everybody complains about how high taxes are right and like nobody really wants to pay as you know 40 percent taxes 30 percent taxes so if you know government spending has to come down yeah and one of the places that they've learned to try to cut off the spigot like i said is medicare yeah and it's only getting less and less the reimbursement's getting less and less and less and less is it leading to like affecting you doctors to it's leading to being more like it's leading to aggressive discharges so but not not the actual like diagnosing part no and and it's it's tightening up the budget so it's forcing you to be better right so when somebody comes in i can't just go oh i don't know what's wrong with them and let's mri their whole body Mm -hmm. right because mris cost a few thousand dollars and you know so it's forcing you to be better and be more efficient which is a good thing Um, but it is forcing you to like aggressively discharge. And a lot of times people come into the hospital and they want to leave the hospital better than they came in, Yeah, which isn't really realistic, especially in some of like our elderly patients where like one little UTI or one little head cold. I mean that like a person who's in their eighties or in their nineties, it's going to take them like weeks to get back if ever to where they were. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable. Like, no, I don't feel good. I don't feel. And it's, from a hospital standpoint is like if we're you're done medically treating you like the rest can be done at acute rehab or like home rehab like you you got to go yeah wow what uh so i mean we've heard and this is my kind of get off topic a little bit but you've heard of like medicare medicare for all is that something that you think would be a solution or would that be just kind of muck up the water even more um it's all in how it's done right mm-hmm. like the concept of everybody getting universal health care is beautiful and it makes a lot of sense um go talk to the canadians that have it and see how they like it yeah um especially where i practice it's a snowbird um city mm-hmm. and we have canadians that come and they despise it 
Really? Um, absolutely. Interesting. They, they absolutely hate it. Um, so what's the unintended consequence of having universal health care that maybe people aren't seeing when it's put into practice? Are the taxes just like out of control? Ca- Canadian taxes are close to 40 to 50% for everybody. And then the weight, the, the health care system, mm. in the, with the goal of getting more people health care, you're yeah. going to get more people in oh, to sure. the health care system. So. You talk to some of the Canadians that have, you know, universal health care. And granted, if you get hit by a car and you end up, you know, on a ventilator and you're in a coma and, you know, uh, you're in the ICU for two or three months, yeah. they patch you together and they say, hey, we did our best. You're healthy. And boom, you don't have a hospital bill. Oh, yeah. And it's great for that. But you have like a head cold or you have something, you know, wrong and you want to see your primary care. You're talking like two month wait, oh, three month wait. And then. Yeah. For any of like the diagnostic screenings, you know, like your colonoscopy, your chest x- X-ray, yeah. all this type of stuff, four months, five months, like it's just so much slower. Yeah. Um, and there's not really that much of you know a little bit here in in a capitalistic country, mm-hmm. you can get like more of a kind of a, a premium product pot, product going to you know people that have fee for service or you know I charge this much that much and so it allows for a little bit more room in terms of you know seeing different people yeah so the free market just uh, allows for more yeah. for a better service um, whereas with something that's just kind of like given it just ends up yeah being so there's incentives for a watered down yeah watered down there's version, incentives yeah. for like the cardiologists and different people to like be a better doctor be a be- and besides doing right with my patient but like being a better doctor in terms of like customer service sure because you know there's different billing rates and all these types of things so you know it's kind of capitalistic in, in an essence and it just really you know forces ingenuity and yeah. forces adaptation so yeah it's it's not cut and dry right. um, when people start talking about universal health care. And, you know, it will do a lot of good. Yeah. Um, it's just how much I don't think people... It's not as rosy and as yeah. uh, amazing as people think it's going to be. Well, no, it's an interesting perspective because I think that's a part of it that main people don't understand or don't... It can't kind of conceptualize with that when you have so much... So many people trying to get universal health care or go to the doctor at one point, Mm -hmm. you're just, it's like you're going to have a longer wait. And here we have the luxury of, you know, specializing in certain areas that kind of helps to alleviate that traffic. the, The other issue is, is like, does the hospital stay need to be $200,000, $300,000. Like that's, that's another issue where there's a, probably a common middle ground between, you know, um, Medicare for all. And then, you know, lowering, um, the, the cost of what it's, how much medicine costs, you know, maybe like a cap or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, uh, I mean, in thinking about that, about, um, you know, what, the free market does for medicine. I mean, I'm sure it has an impact on like some medical advancements. Like what is going on in the medical world now? What are some of the advancements um, in medicine go, uh, right now? So I'm not an expert in the surgery side because um, I'm not a surgeon and they're, they're doing different things all the time. You know, like one of the things that they're doing now for people with, you know, prostate issues is they're just intru- introducing steam yeah. Into the into the prostate, and that's doing a huge uh, ad, advance in um, BPH, you know, prostate issues, and like you know, people men like having um, 
I, I want to know how they found this the, out. Of all the things you could have picked. <laughs> right. So, which is, it's a, it's a huge issue uh, for a lot of men and a lot of men don't want to talk about it, but like getting up in the middle of the night and, you know, uh, you know, urinating all the times and then it affects your quality of sleep. And then with yeah. your quality of sleep, you feel low energy and all these types of things. And, you know, you had to take Flomax. Um, and, uh, then they had this other procedure called a terp where they basically like burrow a hole in your urethra. Oh, geez. So <laughs> it's nice. What are we talking about? <laughs> so it's nice now that you, uh, basically a little bit of steam and they're getting good uh, results with that in terms wow. of. How about anything? In the internal on, medicine. Yeah. How about yeah, yeah. there? No, hold on. I want to know more about this. Just, uh, <laughs> so. My my area of expertise is more on the internal medicine side. Um, some of the better advancements that I'm seeing right now is more targeted therapies uh, with cancer. Mm. Chemotherapy is going to be one of those things, and I can see it here now. Like Chemotherapy through the lens of history is going to be looked at as just moronic and idiotic. Really? It's one of the – it's the only options we have now, but yeah. I think – in 50 years, 100 years, or whatever the case may be, they'll look back at chemotherapy as like leeching or really? just, yeah. yeah. Or like when you used to see like cocaine and like cough syrup. Or like, <laughs> you know, or just even like like making like a witch making like a witch's brew and putting it like on <laughs> yeah, a dirty yeah, yeah. wound. Like chemotherapy is so terrible. And really Whoa. like the whole crux of chemotherapy is kill the body as much as you can without killing the person, hoping that you kill the cancer first. Oh, Jesus. And like, that's, that's the best is? that we have right now. And it works. It, it, it does save people's lives. But yeah. like, if you've ever had the unfortunate, you know, of, you know, uh, God forbid of somebody that you're close to go through chemotherapy, it's terrible. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible. Okay. Well, so what's what, the alternative? What are some of, yeah, so now, so the now, so now they have the, like what they call targeted therapy and like, the move, the movement in my field in, in particular is all genetics. Cause now we have like CRISPR technology. We've sequenced the, the human genome and the, the genome is like, is where everything is. G genetics is where everything is. So yeah. now you can look at these cancer cells and the ones that have like unique specific gene mutations or different gene proteins, you can pinpoint, um, that, uh, mutation and have a medicate a medication work to that and then you're only killing uh cancer cells as oh, opposed to like this mass everything, yeah. yeah just so it's like like a like taking a tylenol or an advil for your headache and well, it just specifically goes to like a pain like receptor it's or basically it like so you take the way that an antibiotic works is like you take an antibiotic that's targeted at that bacteria yeah. and it, it's going to kill mostly just that bacteria right it doesn't kill your red blood cells right. it doesn't you know it's not targeting that so that's where they're really hoping to get to in a lot of the cancer research is yeah. and so that somebody can take these medications, not be on their deathbed and all of the cancer is gone. Yeah. So I'm really, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm really, I would really love for that to come <laughs> sooner than later. And then, like I was saying, um, with the genetics of CRISPR, um, which, you know, you want to talk about playing God, you know, you can do genetic mutation and take certain, you know, harmful genes out and then that way people don't have these hereditary genetic uh, diseases Whoa. but there's a you know dark side to that which is like the um where do you draw the line where do you draw the line do you start in, in uh you know like designer babies like they already did it in 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 china where like they basically 
put together the perfect genetics that they wanted. Wow. And so you can do basically, you know, get the movie Gattaca, like have the perfect genetics yeah, sequence. Exactly what you want. Wow. Exactly what you want. So Whoa. that technology is already here. Um, Watch out. Hey, what's, I, the what's the fallout? I mean, at what point, if you do manipulate like a gene like that, I can't imagine that there's not going to be some fallout, some unintended consequence, like by manipulating it, that it's just like free and clear. You can just kind of get away with it. There's got to be something. Right. right? And, that's, and that's where the, that's the process that they're, that they're uh, working through right now is yeah. what can you do? What can you get away with? Because what's interesting, like they'll teach you in medical school, like the genome is like this linear thing, like, yeah. you know, with all of the, you know, T, A, C, and Gs and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. it's actually like this ball that has... Um, there's a three-dimensional concept to it okay. where like where the genes are and when they get activated. So by you doing, um, you know, genetic ma manipulation, you're kind of messing the, with the t topography of that 3d shape. Yeah. And you don't know, like, even though you think you've targeted that gene, you've fixed it. You don't know what you've what done to a gene that's folded, you know, very downstream. The, the so butterfly yeah. effect. exactly. Very yeah. much so. So. They they're working through that progress and yeah and, wow. and and a lot and that's why you know in medicine it's always a ten or twenty year kind of evaluation of things because you have to you know do your intervention and yeah. then kind of just sit back and yeah wait and watch like, the ripple effect exactly and see what, what happens. happens wow so well speaking so speaking of that stuff like how do you feel or what are your thoughts when people say you know the science or follow the science and stuff like that because that term has been thrown around a ton right. So my, my question is, is like, I don't really know how that's used in everyday conversation besides how it's used in my world, which is like when they say the science, we're talking about peer reviewed studies from academic institutions that are published in like well established, uh, you know, um, medical journals and everything that we're taught and that we do is all evidence-based science-based medication um it seems like now in society there's a lot of people that will like to use follow the science and it's like well what's your scientific background what are you <laughs> what are you calling science because yeah. in my world when we say follow the science we have a link to a study and yeah. you know that's like meta-analysis and these types of things well they have a link too it's just a face yeah exactly. <laughs> that, so so that's the kind of thing that because and in, in, in to sound elitist, like the common person, when they say follow the science, you're talking about a link where you read an article yeah. and it says studies say that doing this does that. And yeah. it's like, well, okay, did you look into the study? Who did the study? What type of study was it? Yeah. How many people were involved in the study? And there's so much that goes into statistics of like actually validating a study yeah. and the regular Joe Schmo or whoever just is saying like, Oh, follow science. Like you don't really know what you're talking about, but in my world, you know, like that you don't deviate from the science. You, yeah. you, you do everything that's proven by science that's been replicated. It's all evidence-based. So in my uh, professional world, yes, we, we do everything by the science, but it, <coughs> the way that you're phrasing it, I think there's like, there, you've had different experiences with people <laughs> that, that say follow the science and it's just a cool term that they like to put out there and it's like, okay, well, give me the science to follow. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, no, but then there's like, maybe what no, because the thinking. terms have developed of like science denier or like whatever. And so, I don't know, I just... Yeah, yeah. What, like what are we talking so, about? So, yeah, so someone is, is going to tell me, you know, follow the science, like I could quickly... Like, you know, okay, well, 
what what science are we talking about? You know, <laughs> yeah. we're just talking about that you read two lines of a of a link that somebody yeah. sent you that said yeah. this, and you know. Well, so. that was like one of many things that came out of like pandemic twenty twenty. Um, but so, what was your experience during that? Because I mean, that was. Uh, that upended the world, it, like the world, like just put on, went and put on pause. And for us, like for everyday Joe Schmo, we weren't in on the front lines, like you know, like like doctors were. So, what was that for, like for you? Um, a central theme, like for me, and throughout my whole medical experience, like ignorance was blitz. Like mm-hmm. I didn't. The pandemic, my residency was actually defined by the pandemic. I started in July of 2019 mm-hmm. and then by the time March or like February March 2020 came I was in my first year of residency oh wow so my whole residency was defined by COVID and yeah. you know I got into residency I'm going to treat sick people I'm going to see people dying I'm going to yeah. you know see diseases and it was I didn't sign up to be a doctor and experience a pandemic, yeah. but I got it, but I didn't know what else there was to experience. For me, it was just everything was going to be brand new anyway. Yeah. Dealing with diseases and, you know, trying to save lives was going to be the experience anyway. It just, I got maybe more so than other people would have before me, yeah. but that's their truth. And, you know, my experience was what I went through through the pandemic. Oh, and if you could get through that, you could probably... Yeah, that's diabetes, Dave walking through. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> here we go yeah. again. So I mean, you know, definitely tough calluses, mentally tough, yeah. um, and you know, I'll probably paying for the PTSD of it, like you know, years down the road. But yeah. like I said, I didn't really have anything else to um, compare it against. So yeah. it was just this is what it is. We we're gonna do it. We're gonna try our best, and yeah. let's, let's get through it. What was it, what was it like in the hospital? I mean, not to, you know, kind of revisit the whole kind of trauma of it all, but, you know, what, was it chaotic? Was it, uh, um, you know, was it everybody just kind of doing their job head down, kind of going about it? What yeah, I would say it was, like? it was very much like, uh, not that I don't have any experience and I don't want to, um, you know, belittle anybody's, you know, service uh, in the military, but I would imagine it was the same thing of here's this awful thing that we have to go through. Yeah. Let's make the most of it. Let's do it the best that we can yeah. and just keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, there were several times like, you know, the hospital's full, we're running on, on supplies and what, what are you going to do? You're going to yeah. throw your hands up and throw a huge pity party for yourself. And, you know, at you break down, like people are looking to you to kind of keep your cool lead and be calm yeah. and do your best. So there was no, you know, instances where you can complain, where you could, you know, back down and just, Keep going, keep showing up, keep showing up, working, working, working. Yeah. That's, that's really all, that was my approach. And I don't know if that was, and thank God I had all of the athletic stuff to like, and football and everything to fall back on. Cause I mean, that's all, that's really what sports and getting better at something is, is showing up mentally tough, work, work, work and get through it. Try your best, hope for, you know, and hope for the best outcome. Is that something you think that 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 background sports background gave you that just kind of like that edge or just that mental toughness? I thought I think so, because I some of the people that, you know, did have big issues with it and and had a little bit of uh, breakdowns. They didn't necessarily have a high competitive sports uh, background. And I'm just one of those believers, you know, that I think, you know, sports as a young adult just shapes you for for life in terms of work ethic discipline mental toughness those types of things so yeah i might be you know prejudiced or biased but um 
yeah, I just kind of looked at it as, you know, like, a, this is a tough opponent. This, yeah. like, this COVID thing, especially in the ho- hospital, is going to be one of the toughest opponents that, I, that I'm going to have. Yeah. And what can I do to defeat it? And it show up, get better, work yeah. hard, those types of things. Well, we've talked about that before, about, you know, mental toughness and just kind of pushing yourself to a limit, figuring out where that limit is, and then pushing yourself beyond it because you had no option, mm-hmm. you know? And I know, yeah. uh, like, not to be you know, cavalier or, or to try to compare the two. But, you know, when you're on that football field and you're just kind of digging deep and, you know, think you have nothing more in you and you push yourself to it because you have no other option, mm-hmm. you have to run this, you know, this next gas or whatever it is. And, you know, transferring that onto your job where you had to do it. There is no, there's no second guessing. There's no nothing. You have to But with some of those, it. like, doctors that maybe didn't have that experience, like... I don't know. Did was there any like disputes between you guys, or was it more of like you had to bring them up and kind of pep? There was them a up, lot of people. It- yeah, there was a lot of people that tapped out, um, not like quit, but like needed a day or two. Yeah. And then the people that did have the you know mental resolve to like pick up the slack, they they were more were you know thrust upon their you know shoulders. Yeah. And you know, in all honesty, um, you know, you don't want someone there that's like mentally breaking down you want someone that's kind of keeping it together so you know if they need to take a moment to you know um, gather themselves then you know all for it like the there was a core of us that were there that because it was in the icu where everybody would just be overwhelmed there's only so much and there's only so much people dying around you and talking to family members and explaining to the family members hey we did our best but it didn't work out they're you know your father's gone, your mother's gone, you know, your loved one is, is passed, whoever it is. There's really only so much of that that a lot of people can take. So for people that, you know, break down and saying they need a day out, like day off or, you know, can't do it anymore, totally understand. Um, for me, you know, I, like I said, it's just showing up mentally tough. Like, you know, if nobody else is going to do it, you, you know, if I'm not going to do it, who else is going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Some heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some and really so heavy stuff. Yeah, so I don't know if that was like my defense mechanism, if that was like where I went to to make it work. As like I just looked at it as okay, I'm on the battlefield, I'm on the football field. There's no retreating, there's no giving up. I'm not letting this opponent win. We're fighting for our lives, and just there's gotta go, gotta go. Yeah, you know? deep. Yeah, dang man. So that is crazy. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know if I would have had that having without having experienced something like that through competitive organized sports. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, you know, strapping everything up and here we go. Are you gonna quit <laughs> yeah. or you're gonna show up and yeah. you're, you're gonna be a gamer? Yeah. Um and then also just hard work, like uh, lifting, gassers, hard practices, two a days, yeah. all those things. Like I think and it, it did something for me personally, and yeah. I'm forever grateful for it. It's a good common theme that I think that we've, you know, talked about in this show is, you know, what that does to people, what that does to young kids in our formidable years at that, you know, age, uh, and how it's just so important, and it just sticks with you. It sticks with you for years. I mean, even to this day, when things get tough, you just kind of, you know, think back to those times and, and how you felt and, and knowing that you can get through it. And it's weird because they tell you that, when you're doing it, when you're a teenager, and yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make doesn't. sense to you, and then here, here I am now, and it's like, yeah, this totally makes sense. And, Still and, going know, back to it. Yeah. I was, I'm probably like mentally tougher now than I was like back then, where it's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I could be at the beach. I could be doing this and yeah. doing that. But you know, I just, I can't 
talk highly enough about organized tough sports. Yeah. You know? I tell I tell my players that all the time. I'm like, I know it doesn't make sense right now, but you just gotta just believe me. Yeah. Just do it. It's gonna like, pay it's gonna pay dividends. Like It'll pay dividends it. in your life. So. Uh, but let's switch gears. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've prepared a couple uh, things for you. This is a surprise okay. for you. All right. Um, we're going to play fact or fiction with uh, diseases. Okay. Which, <laughs> I, better, I better get these gonna, 100%. Yeah. We're going to see which this ones. This part can be edited, right? So. Which ones of these are real? We went in the uh, medical okay. book. And, yes. Uh, I cracked up. open so many books here. Uh-huh. Uh, first one. Conjunctivitis. That's real. That's well, pink eye. Pink eye. Very good. <laughs> one for one. Here we go. Keep it score. Here we go. Uh, burkitis. Burkitis. Bursitis? No. Burkitis. I don't know what burkitis is. Real or fake? Fake. That's ah, fake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Mononucleosis. Oh, yeah. That's real. That's the kissing disease. That's what everybody gets. That's mono. Yeah, it's mono. <laughs> Uh, gastroenteritis. Yeah, that's you the <laughs> that one's real. Uh, pigeonoma. That's fake. That is fake. <laughs> pigeonoma. <laughs> that's so good. You know how hard it is to make fake diseases. I was searched so hard. I tried so hard. Pigeonoma. What would it be though? Well, again, so tell us. What pigeonoma would it be? Pigeonoma comes from. Uh, no, you start. It's when you walk. Thinking, <laughs> you start thinking you're a pigeon, or you no. walk pigeon toe like this. <laughs> I just got pigeonoma. <laughs> oh man, you hear what happened to Bobby? <laughs> bad, case, bad case of pigeonoma. All right, all right. It's going around. Yeah. Here we go. Foreign accent syndrome. Foreign accent syndrome. Now you're getting into the psych. I would say that is fake. I want to say it's real. It is real. Okay. Is when you wake up from like a coma and you like have like uh, you speak with an accent? Yeah. So you have a some type of head injury. Yeah. And you can like. Oh, yeah, I have heard other, that. Yeah, yeah, other yeah. languages. Yeah. So. I, I wasn't. Yeah, I was talking about someone because there's like factitious disorders, where yeah, uh, there's like conversion disorders, and sometimes people take on new personalities so yeah that that one is real yeah i've got him you went you went psych on me but yeah you <laughs> yeah here we go uh acute andromeda andromeda no that's fake <laughs> oh dude way, way to add the fun acute, part. Right? Right? i like that i like that i like dude, that that's good. so hard yeah i got more here we go uh diverticulitis diverticulitis real well, okay what go. is it Diverticula is, so your uh, intestines, your digestive tract is supposed to be a smooth tube. And then you have these like uh, outpouchings in your intestine. And it's a basically um, a bad anatomy where like undigested food or fecal particles can go inside of that uh, outpouching. And then that diverticula can become inflamed. And then that becomes diverticulitis. How do you treat it? Uh, antibiotics, healthy diet, and then it gets bad. Like a lot of those times, those diverticula perf, and yeah. then you need bowel resection. Yeah. yeah. What do you? They got to stay away from like seeds and stuff. That was the, always the common thing. It was like popcorn and seeds and everything Damn, like that. How'd you know that? I feel like I heard it somewhere. I don't Brock Lesnar. This is yes. what happened to Brock Lesnar. Oh. Yes. So he got diverticulitis and had like I think two feet of his uh, colon or his large intestine removed. Two feet. Yeah, two feet. <clears throat> All right. Uh, labyrinthitis. Labyrinthitis, ear infection. Oh, I think I've had that. Yeah. 
Labyrinthitis. Yeah. 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 You get like dizzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ringing in the ear, dizzy, nauseous. Yeah. Those. How types do you treat it? Uh, well, there's that's there's a lot of different causes. There's like Meniere's, uh, BPV. Sometimes it's like medication induced. So if it's an infection, you treat it with an infection. Yeah. Um, if it's Meniere's disease, it's like lifestyle. And then if it's BPV, it's like these Epley maneuvers that you have to do and move your head. And oh. Like that. oh, I've seen that where you like go upside oh, down. Yeah. And like you like yeah. yeah you I've have seen um, that. the way that you, your positional sense. You have crystals inside of a free fluid yeah. that is has like zero gravity, yeah. and so when it when you move, then it kind of like it positions in that in that fluid, yeah. and that lets you know that you're upside down or you're oh, sideways and those types gotcha. of things. So then, what ends up happening is like you know when those crystals are uh, dislodged, now you just constantly think you're upside down when you're not. Oh my that's God, not technically what what labyrinthitis is, but that's like one of the symptoms of labyrinthitis. Okay, all right, here we go. Uh, fibromyalgia. Oh yeah, that's definitely real. Body pain, nerve pain. Fibromyalgia, yeah, it's like an overwhelming, like sense of like uh, uh, just pain without necessarily any eliciting factors. Okay. All right. Uh, resistant Gulf Ebola. Uh, not well, you're, Ebola is a disease, and then <laughs> if you're saying that there's like a new strand of resistant uh, Ebola, I would say possibly Ebola is real. Is there new resistant uh, Ebola? Say, let's say, yeah. Fake. Ah, got him. Got him. Let's do. Let's do. Okay, last <laughs> one. Last one. Idiopathic adolescent acute neurodegeneration. Is it real? It's real. I thought it was fake. Really? I thought, oh, okay. Because I, thought, <laughs> I just, I just started throwing. Really, I was like, actually going to say I, I threw a lot of buzzwords. Yeah, together. exactly. <laughs> That's what. I, you got me because it was so well put together. I didn't think you could come up with it. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's so. what I'm talking about. That was pediatrics. I'm not. In, I'm not a ped. No, I got it. I got that from. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you guys where yeah. I got it from. But yeah. anyways, it's fake. Yeah. <laughs> got me. So it was the Fournier's foreign language. Yeah, Ebola, Ebola, which was real, but then you added uh, golf Re- resistance. Resist yeah. 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 The really good one was that last one. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty good. And it wasn't yeah. my area of expertise. Yeah. We'll give you well, a pass. Well, you pass. You yeah. pass. If this were med school, you would pass. Yeah, you, got, you got better than 50%. Yeah, yeah we'll grade it on a curve. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, we're good. Yeah. All right, we're going to take one more break. We'll be back after this. All right, this episode is brought to you by Executive Construction. Established in 1992, Executive Construction is an Orange County-based general contractor which takes a new approach towards room additions, kitchens, bathrooms, and all your remodel needs. Yeah, they have the capabilities of doing pretty much any kind of remod that you need in your house. They just worked on your brother's house recently. That's right. They redid my brother's backyard. It was pool, jacuzzi, barbecue. Looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they've got 30 plus years of experience and uh, they're a trusted contractor in the OC area. So reach out to them if you have any construction needs. Their number is 714-497-7406 and tell them Real in the Field sent you. All right, and we are back with Dr. Tajav Sharifan. Uh, we're going to get into some real estate talk. I want to know about uh, what your journey has been with real estate, where you're at, what do you got, future aspirations uh, in real estate. Yeah, um, I was really fortunate um, to be older, like I said uh, before, and kind of have be at least somewhat um, business savvy. When I got to Bakersfield, and Bakersfield being you know the glorious place that it, that it was, real estate <laughs> was uh, was very cheap. And yeah. even though um, I was 
making, you know, not a lot of money um, that people would think like as a doctor would be in, in residency. I was making less than uh, 60 grand. I was able to at least buy a condo. Oh, nice. Um, so I bought a condo for um, $145,000 uh, in 2019. Yeah. Um, wow. And thank God, uh, by the time that I left uh, residency, which was, you know, 2022, um, real estate value had gone up, uh, a lot. So I was able to flip that for 215. Nice. So, and I told all the people that I was in residency with, you know, they were, you know, paying rent and yeah. all this. And, you know, you have the risk, you could, you could lose money, but I figured in, in Bakersfield, it was either going to stay the same yeah. and, or it was going to go up. Yeah, so that was bad. nice. That was a nice little uh, nest egg. And then when I got the job in the city that I'm in now, um, it took some searching and was able to finally uh, lock in and, and get a home. Kind of probably uh, a little bit more than I would have liked to in terms of like the HOA. Yeah. And um, I did 10% okay. down instead of uh, uh, 20%. So I have PMI, sure. which I'm not thrilled about. Yeah. But I wanted to be a little bit more leveraged right. so that I could uh, stay f uh, with more capital because I'm looking to hopefully try to get at least one rental property every year, most yeah. likely realistically one every two years. Okay. Um, yeah. Might have not have been the best choice, but... That's well, what I ended up doing. Yeah, so you saved some capital. You took whatever the the, the money, the proceeds that you uh, got from your house in Bakersfield, sold it. Uh, I mean, and just in thinking about that, you would have been paying rent no matter what. Right. Instead of putting money towards somebody else's mortgage, mm -hmm. you put it to yourself. Yeah. And now, and from that, you took proceeds from that, bought yourself a place out in Palm Springs. And when did you buy that house? Uh, the Palm Springs house? Yeah. I bought that in, uh, I think we closed in January of uh, 2023. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So just recently. Pretty recently. Condo? Yeah. Uh, condo, yeah. Okay. Condo in a uh, lake community. So that's where the HOA is really high. Right. Because um, I have a man-made lake in the desert. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Got to be yeah. yeah. So, uh, that, you know, that, that really is, um, cuts into the, the profit. But. Uh, my mortgage <clears throat> in Bakersfield was $900. It was like oh, wow. eight, uh, eight ninety two or something like that. Yeah. And the rent that everybody else was paying was like 700 or 600 or 800. And I yeah. was just telling everybody, I was like, what are you guys doing? And yeah. I got it like right when I was able to get two paychecks and a W2 and right, yeah. proof of like bank statements. And I got approved for everything and it was a no brainer. I mean, so, it was yeah. How was that process when you bought your first? So, I mean, that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that a lot of people don't understand, you know, just what it takes to have a W2 compared to, you know, 1099 mm -hmm. and what you can do once you have um, a, a, a paycheck, two paychecks, two paycheck stubs, uh, and a bank account. So what was that process like for you when you uh, applied for your loan? Um, out in it, was a, it was overwhelming. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Um, luckily, I had the guidance of like family members and um, in, in particular, like my father, that was like really helpful. You know, he had, he's bought and sold real estate before. Yeah. Um, so it was really kind of like monkey see, monkey do. He just told me all the stuff that I needed. Yeah. And then when I got, it was a little frustrating dealing with like the underwriter or, you know, who, the lender because I would send him something and he's and he, and it'd be like, well, I need this now. And yeah. then like in the next email, it'd be like, 
send me the thing that you had just sent me like two emails ago. And it's like, if you go up on the chain, it's there. And then I realized that for these guys, you got to really make it like, so I just made one email yeah. with like my W2, my two statements, right. you know, some other, you know, money that I had from leftover from personal training, like all of my, the thing that actually helped me a lot, uh, I think that I was able to get approved for uh, loans was all of my student loans went into forbearance. Oh, yeah. Or else, like, my debt-to-income ratio, I don't right. know if I would have um, qualified. But yeah. luckily, with, you know, like, $150,000 worth of school loans, which is relatively light compared to other people, I didn't have a payment um, coming yeah. out of my pocket. So that ended up uh, helping me a lot. But to answer, go back to your question, like, it was uh, very daunting. It was a little uh, confusing. Um, and I'm glad I had somebody else that had done it before yeah. that had shown me that showed me how to do it. Now I feel like I'm a little bit more prepared. I yeah. have all my documents already, you know, um, you know, on my computer, all everything's, you know, PDF format. So like I'm ready to go ready. this next time. Yeah. Um, Experience. Well, now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the future plan is to buy some rental properties now. So you want to, you see like what you could do, what you did out in Bakersfield, um, you know, what that a property can turn into in just a short period of time. And then you're going to try and duplicate that. Yeah, and you know, obviously, I had a r really uh, amazing first crack at it, and they're yeah. all not going to, you know, basically, you know, double and or give me fifty percent return. Yeah. But um, in terms of you know what to do with your income, I'm not as savvy in like stocks as I should be. I don't really feel comfortable investing in like VC or like companies as yeah. you know, um, real estate, especially in, you know, Orange County is something that I've seen a lot of people do really well on. Yeah. Um, and it just makes sense yeah. uh, to some extent. So yeah, the goal right now, and I probably shouldn't be as in my, in my portfolio, I shouldn't be as interested in uh, real estate as I am, but I'm just getting started. Yeah. So if I could get a couple, you know, starter properties over the next five years, that'd be great. And I don't know where I'm at yet in terms of, you know, get them and try to cash flow them and keep them or, you know, and I don't really have any uh, construction background or anything, but the, the idea of like flips seems really, really, you know, interesting. Yeah. Like, but it's great when it works out, you know, you buy something, yeah. you put a little bit of money in it, you flip it. And then, you know, three months you made 60, 80 grand doesn't mm. always work out that way. So right. As of right now, it would be buy something and rent it out. Hopefully, it cash flows yeah. or it kind of breaks even. And then, you know, maybe down the line, if the, it's gone up in value, sell it yeah. or continue to rent it. No, it's a good it's a good plan. And I mean, thinking about making your money work for you uh -huh. and doing you know taking whatever capital that you have, and it's it's one of the safest places that you can park your money. It's one of the best investments uh, that you can make. Um, because especially in Southern California, there's always a need for housing. There's always a need for rentals. Uh, just year after year, rental prices keep going up mm -hmm. and it's, there's no better place to do it. So, I mean, it's a good idea. Um, having the right plan, but not it being not the right time yeah. really scares me. So what do you thought you think your thoughts are? Cause you can say you can buy and over a long enough time, you're always going to be right. But yeah. are you with how high everything has gone? Yeah, it's tough, especially uh, right now. It's tough to cash flow. It's tough to buy a property, uh, collect rent and make and, and just cash flow to a point where you're covering your costs and making a little bit on it. I mean, if your long term plan, if you can kind of sustain uh, a little bit of a dip in like what your take home is uh, for the long term goal to be you know, um, uh, have this property, have it gain value, and then also at some point cash flow, 
uh, I think that would be, you know, that's really the only way to do it. Because right now, it, with interest rates the way that they are and with property values the way that they are, it's hard unless you're putting like 50% down mm-hmm. to really cash flow on a million dollar property. And if you're looking at like a two unit property in Orange County, million dollars is like your minimum, yeah. like the minimum that you're going to get. There are other places that have more growth and have a like lower barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Some of the places like on the outskirts of like Orange County, Hesperia, Victorville, things like mm-hmm. that. You just got to know what you're getting into and you got to know what those numbers look like in order to purchase, be able to uh, cash flow, get into places that have uh, like some nice growth and at minimum can kind of cover your expenses and cover your rent for, you know, for as long as you can and not lose money. And that's the next daunting thing is do I... Is it the, the difficult thing that's more daunting is like, do I go to some place that's less desirable to live? Yeah. And so you don't think that it's going to go up in value as much as po- uh, as it would if you buy something on the coast. Yeah. But true. buying something in Dana Point, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, uh, La Jolla, um, you know, those types of things, uh, Corona Del Mar. Yeah. Like they're so expensive it's and it's so, in, yeah. it's so hard to project that like, do you really think it's going to keep going up and up? Yeah. I mean, places along the coast, they're like $1,100 a square foot. Like, yeah. is that, is it going to keep going up to where it makes sense for you to buy something? It's going to go up to $1,500 a square foot, $1,800 a square foot. And the only thing, you know, they always say you can't duplicate beachfront, waterfront properties. Yeah, so. well, that's true. I mean, that's the, you know, if everybody had the answer to that, we'd all be millionaires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of people that get into, uh, you know, buying properties, rehabbing them, either flipping them or renting them. It's tough to say because nobody can kind of see the future and what these places are going to look like rent-wise and property value-wise. Everyone's trying, you know, kind of just making the best assessment. And I think going into it with the plan uh, of, you know, how you want to get to that goal, I think that's the best kind of way to formulate that path is goal in mind and like the trajectory and how to get that. Yeah, the two things that I'm looking at and, you know, just like, I could get in a place with a lower barrier of entry and the, actually, let me start with this. Do you feel like rent in areas like you, that you mentioned, Victorville, Hesperia, um, Inland Empire, do you feel like, you know, two bedroom, th- three bedroom, the rent you would say is how much more different than rent in a similar say, uh, size place here in like Orange or... Yeah. Um, like, wouldn't you say they're relatively close? Like, uh, it, you know, I, I, it's so tough. Every area has its own. I mean, it, every area has its own kind of like price. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so I lease a place in Rancho uh, Mission Viejo mm-hmm. for fifth, almost fifty two hundred. Mm-hmm. Three bedroom, two bath. I rented a three bedroom, two bath here in Orange for thirty five hundred. I mean, it's like a almost like a two thousand dollars swing in price, and. You know, if you kind of took the distance from where the house is compared to the coast, I mean, it's about the same distance. It's just one's down and all the way in South Orange County and the other, the other one's here near the circle. So it's hard to really kind of put a like put a, a, a hard like this is where prices should be based on, um, you know, kind of where they're at to the coast. But that's all to say that places like Hisperia or places like Victorville, you can purchase them for significantly less. And so the amount that you're going to be out monthly compared to what you're going to be bringing in monthly might be 
like the gap might be right. smaller, you know what I mean? And maybe there won't be that big significant like increase in value like there would be in Orange County, but it's all just a matter of how much you want to be out, you know? And if your plan is to purchase every two years or every, you know, every year, what that looks like with your income and how much you have and how much you want to allocate towards that. It might be that what you're bringing in you're better off purchasing, you know, places like that that you can put less down and cash flow immediately mm-hmm. compared to saving everything and buying something in like Corona Del Mar or any of the places that you're talking about and just all your money is allocated towards that. You're not going to be cash flowing and on top of it, you're just going to be, you know, you might be upside down on your rent for a little bit until you get to a point where, uh, um, you know, you cash flow better or you put more money down in order to cash flow and then you're just kind of, you know, out that capital, you know what I mean? No, that's, that was exactly my question was, you know, cash flow in those lower, uh, property cost areas and you're cash flowing, uh, sooner, but yeah. the chances of you doubling up yeah. is a lot, a lot less likely whether or not you get a place in on the coast, um, where you probably won't be cash flowing, but yeah. if you do go to flip or you do go to sell, there's a chance you could double up. There's yeah. a chance, or, or, you know, something that you bought for 1.5, 2 million right. is going to go for 2.8, 2, yeah. 2.9. Whereas if you buy something in those other c- cities for 6, for 500, yeah. at most you might be able to get 7, you know, 700, 800. Yeah. And, you know, you made a nice little chunk, but you're not. Not the significant amount, like if you were to just, yeah, buy it, something like that. I think that would go back to where your game plan is and what you want to do and are you looking to get out. If you're looking to purchase, make a big profit and get out, then for sure, there's there's no growth like Southern California, Coastal, Orange County, you know, uh, as close as you can to the beach. There's going to be no better place to do that. Um, if it's, you know, buy and hold and just have long term, you know, there's like an old adage of, you know, however many doors you can get, you know, if that's the the uh, the objective, then, you know, maybe some of those other places might look a little bit more desirable. Um, all right, here we go. <laughs> We're going to ask one last question. Let's put a bow on it. Let's land the plane. Send right. us out. Yeah. If someone wants to be a doctor, what do you recommend? What would What advice would you give them? That's one of those annoying things where, like, I'm going to answer a question with a question. And it's why you got to know your why, uh, just like any big decision in life. What I've seen with a lot of physicians, it was hard family upbringing that you're going to do really well in school. You're going to get good grades. You're going to go to a four year college and then you're going to med school. And the kid just kind of gets in the grind and gets in the motion. And it's just like, I get good grades. That's what I do. I ace tests. I kick buck uh, academically. What's really interesting about becoming a physician is it's so much more of a people business and it's not as cut and dry as just read something and uh, uh, do well on a test. You have to really be into interacting with human beings, understanding um, the human element, um, and that has to be something that you look forward to. Like the, the payoff has to be the joy that you get acting, doing an act of service for somebody. So know your why is the biggest thing. Are you getting into it 
because you're just really smart and you do really well in school and just that's what people around you are telling you that you should do and everybody in your family is going to respect the fact that you're a doctor and you're going to have this amazing title or is it that you really want to be in a game of not a game but be in a job that's you know literally a matter of life and death yeah. and you want to interact with people it's pretty good I love it it's pretty good all right, well, that's a good note to go out on. So that is this week's episode of Real in the Field. Thank you to Dr. Tejav Sherifan. We appreciate you being here. It was uh, really cool hearing uh, your story, your uh, you know your story in the medical field and how you got into it, and uh, you know your journey all along. So thanks for thanks for coming, thanks for being on, and we'll catch you guys next week uh, with a new episode of Real in the Field. <laughs>